this week on the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. We go to Twin Falls with the Idaho Preferred Program, where the Yellow Brick Cafe is using Idaho-grown products on their menu. And it's not just for Canadians. We'll take a look at a University of Idaho program that is venturing into the maple syrup business. We also, of course, will feature another installment of Paul Marchant's Irons in the Fire. I'm Neil Larson. Welcome to the program. Our news is just ahead. You're going to need me. You're going to need us. All of us. You're going to need our help with your water, your air, your food. You're going to need our determination, our compassion. You're going to need the next generation of leaders to face the challenges the future will bring. And we promise we'll be there when you need us. Today, 4-H is growing the next generation of leaders. Support us at 4-H.org. The La Nina weather pattern is expected to be in force for the third consecutive winter, but what does that mean for seasonal weather across the country? Rod Bain has more in this report. So what might this winter look like from a weather perspective? La Nina conditions continued through the summer months and remain in place for the third consecutive winter and are forecast to persist into spring 2023. John Gottschalk of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Climate Prediction Center says that breaks down to conditions this winter, which include a general warmer and drier south and cooler, wetter north. Warmer than average conditions are expected across the southern tier of the nation through the Atlantic seaboard and below normal temperatures forecasted throughout the north. Wetter than average conditions are favored in western Alaska, the Pacific Northwest, northern Rockies, and parts of the Great Lakes and Ohio Valley. Drier than average conditions are most likely for portions of California, the southwest, the southern Rockies, southern plains, Gulf Coast, and much of the southeast. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Well, University of Idaho's College of Agricultural and Life Sciences has received a massive $55 million grant to help Idaho farmers and ranchers voluntarily adopt agricultural practices to combat climate change. The grant is twice as large as any other grant U of I has ever received. Half the money will be passed through to farmers and ranchers who are willing to adopt certain climate-smart practices aimed at reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Loud applause erupted when... Cal's Dean Michael Perella announced the grant on October 5th to a group of U of I supporters and alumni in Meridian. Uh, he said that it's almost earth-shaking in terms of its size. It's the largest grant the campus has ever gotten. It is a game-changer. Absolutely phenomenal. End of quote. Perella pointed out that almost half the money will be passed through to agricultural producers to incentivize them to voluntarily adopt climate-smart agricultural practices. All of this according to a piece by Sean Ellis of the Idaho Farm Bureau. And if you'd like to read the rest of this story, just go to IdahoFB.org and search for their news section. Dairy growers have until December 9th to sign up for dairy margin coverage for this coming year. Rod Bain has more with Farm Service Agency Deputy Administrator Scott Marlowe. Now underway for dairy producers. Sign up for 2023 USDA dairy margin coverage. The enrollment is open now through December 9th. Farm Service Agency Deputy Administrator Scott Marlowe says improvements to coverage have been made over the past year. The feed cost formula will pay for high quality alfalfa hay. There is also the second year of supplemental DMC available. The supplemental DMC allows folks to align their payments more closely with their current production if it's changed, if they've had growth as it applies to calendar years 2021, 22, and 23. 
Online decision-making tools are available for dairy producers to calculate coverage at dmc.dairymarkets, all one word, dot O-R-G. More information about dairy margin coverage can be obtained through local FSA offices or online at www.fsa.usda.gov. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. The 2022 election is drawing closer. Chad Smith has more on the opportunity for U.S. agriculture to help influence its future. Election 2022 is an important time for U.S. agriculture and its many stakeholders to cast their votes. John Iverson is a past young farmer and rancher chair and Oregon farmer who says it's more important than ever to make your voice heard. I think if you look at Europe and what's happening with their fuel insecurity, imagine if that was food insecurity and food prices rising, you're relying on other countries for food. And even though we're not there in the United States, it could happen. It seems like agriculture is always under attack. And so it's very important to get people in office that understand agriculture and support agriculture here domestically. And with the Farm Bill coming up, it's really important that we help shape that farm bill to make it work for farmers. He says young people shouldn't be afraid to get involved in the political process because it's a lot like farming. Farmers plant seeds hoping they'll bear fruit in the future. The political process is no different. The seeds you plant today will bear fruit in the future. And I'd say for young people, it's very important because our timeline of how long we're going to be in the industry and trying to support ourselves with our farms is a long time. And so we want to make sure that the policies we set today will positively impact us down the road. If we have negative things going on right now, it just makes it more difficult down the road. So little changes right now can make big differences for us in the future. And so I think it's vitally important for young farmers to be engaged, know how the political process works and know their representatives. And that way, when there is an issue, they can go in the office and they already have that relationship built. He talks about where to go for resources on voting. Our state has a voter pamphlet. I'm guessing most states do. That's always a good spot to start and read and know what the candidates stand for. Two other really good resources is your state Farm Bureau a lot of times will have resources on candidates they endorse and support and why. But another really good resource is the I Farm I Vote page on the American Farm Bureau's website. It's fb.org slash vote. You can check your registration status. You can find out what district you're in, what candidates are running in your area. So I think that's a really good resource. Chad Smith, Washington. USDA offers the latest numbers per its October forecasts for turkey production and prices with Thanksgiving soon here. Here's Rod Bain with World Ag Outlook Board Chair Mark Jekinowski. A lowering of turkey production forecast and a rise in what growers receive price-wise as the Thanksgiving holiday approaches in a few weeks. USDA World Agricultural Outlook Board Chair Mark Jekinowski says for October... 2022 turkey production we reduced by about 10 million pounds, reflecting both hatchery data that we're observing and also some recent cases of HPAI that also are going to have some impact on near-term production. With such trends expected to continue into 2023. As for price forecasts for turkey, we raised our turkey price forecast this month 1.6 cents per pound to 152.9 cents per pound for 2022. And for 2023, we raised our turkey price forecast by 2.8 cents per pound to 151 cents or $1.51 per pound. Reflecting tighter turkey supplies, according to Jack Kodowski. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. On a steep hillside beneath a canopy of scarlet leaves, University of Idaho Extension educator Bracken Henderson of Franklin County searched for the perfect copse of big tooth maple trees. About 25 yards uphill, his collaborators 
Paul Harris, a research technician with Utah State University's Center for Water Efficient Landscaping, and USU Plant Sciences graduate student Jesse Matthews evaluated trunk circumferences within another grove. The researchers are in the first year of a project aiming to introduce a new niche agricultural industry to the Intermountain West, locally sourced maple and box elder syrup. Utah State received a three-year $500,000 grant through the ACER Access and Development Program under USDA's Agricultural Marketing Service to test the feasibility of commercial syrup production in parts of Idaho, Utah, and Wyoming. From these funds, U of I received a $50,000 sub-award to assist in the effort, focusing on the foothills near Oxford, an isolated farming community of 48 people in southeast Idaho. And on that crisp early October morning, the trio selected 30 of the largest maples they could find on a sufficient grade and within proximity to one another. They set up a network of rubber piping connecting the trees to a certain vessel at the base of the hill. In the spring, the researchers will tap the trees to collect sap, which Henderson will boil and reduce to make syrup. Now, if you'd like to read the rest of this interesting story, written by John O'Connell of the University of Idaho, you can go to idahofb.org. Well, producers can now decide if they wish to elect either agricultural risk coverage or price loss coverage for this coming year. Here's Rod Bain with more. The sign-up for ArcPLC for the 2023 crop started on October 17th. It runs through March 15th. And USDA Farm Service Agency Deputy Administrator Scott Marlowe says with various events over the last two years, agriculture risk coverage and price loss coverage provide needed risk management options. We just recently processed about $255 million in payments for the 2021 crop year. Producers can change their election of program coverage as well as enroll for their choice for this coming crop year. Web-based decision tools are available to determine coverage options found at www.fsa.usda.gov in the Programs and Services tab leading to the ARC PLC page. Marlowe adds ARC and PLC election and enrollment choices can have impacts on eligibility of some crop insurance products, such as supplemental coverage option. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Water levels on several major rivers are falling to levels that could pose problems for grain barge navigation. Here's Gary Crawford with more. Here is just one of hundreds of songs written about that great body of water. Oh, you Mississippi River with water so deep and wide. So-called father of country music, Jimmy Rogers, recorded that in 1929. The song was called The Mississippi River Blues. Well, the river may be wide these days, but not as deep as it should be, and that goes for some other major rivers as well. That's because the northern and western areas of the country that feed rivers, such as the Missouri and the Mississippi, have been in drought for over two years now. And so with the long-running drought across this region, that is beginning to increasingly affect some of the river flows on our major waterways. Agriculture Department meteorologist Brad Rippey. And so as you work your way down the Missouri and the Mississippi, we are seeing very low, almost historically low water levels starting to show up in some of these major shipping lanes. And for one example of that, let's head for... Uh, Yes, that's a 1964 song by, oh, what a coincidence, Johnny Rivers. But uh, back to Brad Rippey, who says... At Memphis, which is a a key point there that lies in the northern part of the Mississippi Delta, 
the current stage at, at for the Mississippi River at Memphis is 13 feet below what's considered to be a low stage at Memphis, Tennessee. Less than three feet from the all-time record low level for the Mississippi River at Memphis. That was set back during the drought of 1988. So again, the current stage is getting very close to some of these all-time record low levels. In fact, low river levels are starting to bring on some dicey conditions and necessary changes for barge traffic. That requires the barge operators to lighten the loads to keep the barges from sinking as low in the water, where there's a risk of them becoming lodged on sandbars. And if levels keep falling, rivers may have to be dredged out to allow barges to get through at all, and in any event. It's going to really slow things down getting the corn and soybeans out of the Midwest this year. Rippy says rain and a lot of it upstream is about the only real cure for the Mississippi River. Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. USDA and the U.S. Agency for International Development will partner in efforts to promote research to address global hunger and malnutrition concerns. Rod Bain has more with USAID Administrator Samantha Power. Harnessing the power of our nation's agriculture and food systems research to address issues of global hunger and malnutrition. I'm pleased to announce the Global Food Security Research Strategy, jointly led by USAID and the U.S. Department of Agriculture. U.S. Agency for International Development Administrator Samantha Power Wednesday at the Borlaug International Dialogue in Iowa. The strategy provides a roadmap for investments and research, one developed in partnership with development organizations, universities, federal research agencies, and researchers in the communities themselves around the globe. The strategy focuses on three areas. Genetic improvements of crops and livestock, climate smart agriculture, and improved nutrition. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack said by a press release, investments in ag research and development of innovations from it are imperative for global farmers to meet various challenges. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. When we return, the past, present, and future of recreation in America's national forests and a look at the power of agricultural cooperatives on the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. Welcome back to the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. I'm Neil Larson. The Forest Service is involved in projects to improve the recreational experience of National Forest visitors today and to reimagine what the experience might be in the future. Gary Crawford has more on this edition of Agriculture USA. The U.S. Forest Service as we know it today was officially created by Congress back when this song was a big hit. Uh, so, you know, it was a long time ago, 1905 to be exact. Signing the law that created the Forest Service was this man. The welfare of the farmer is a basic need of this nation. President Teddy Roosevelt, a big supporter of having forests for recreation. He certainly loved the outdoors. And today, as it was true all those years ago, as far as outdoor recreation... It means so much to our country in terms of mental well-being, physical well-being, and it also provides jobs and economic opportunity as well. 
And coming up, a look at a big project to improve some well-worn Forest Service recreational facilities for today's visitors and another project to reimagine recreation for tomorrow. On this edition today of Agriculture USA, I'm Gary Crawford. Hey, thank you for making the Idaho Farm and Ranch show a part of your week. Stay updated throughout the week at IdahoFarmNet.com. There you can subscribe to our podcast in case you missed part of the show, or you can catch the latest news from the USDA, Idaho Farm Bureau, Capital Press, and other groups that we've partnered with. You can connect with us on social media there as well. And if you have a question or comment, we'd love to hear from you. Again, you can reach us at IdahoFarmNet.com. Whether you like to ride ATVs out in the woods... Or maybe try a little quieter, four-legged transportation, like a leisurely trail ride through the forest, or maybe do a little fishing. There's no shortage of places to do that kind of thing in this country. Plenty of room out there, right? We have 193 million acres of national forest out there. Yeah, that ought to be enough room, all right. (laughs) Gordy Bloom is with the U.S. Forest Service, and among other things, he directs the Forest Service's recreational program, which covers a lot of ground since there are 154 national forests in this country, offering all sorts of topography and recreational activities. Now, there has been a developing situation for the Forest Service over the last 10 years or so. More and more of its budget for maintenance of its facilities, its trails, roads, and such, has had to be redirected to pay for fighting those wildfires. So as we started this year, the Forest Service had about six and a half billion dollars worth of maintenance and upkeep jobs that had been deferred. No money. Meanwhile, Gordy says during the pandemic, more people than ever were coming into the national forests. I think we peaked at 168 million visitors in 2020. Wow. So with less money for upkeep and more visitors coming to the forests, There were obviously impacts to some of our facilities, our infrastructure. Examples, uh, hiking trails being washed out and closed down, campgrounds closed or with reduced services such as water and bathrooms, cabins in need of electrical and structural repair. But help is on the way. The president's infrastructure law is providing $37 million to improve recreational facilities, cabins, historic buildings and such. So right now, Gordy and others at the Forest Service are going through lists of possible projects that need doing, trying to decide what are those most pressing needs in terms of safety? Are there things that need to be repaired urgently to make sure that people can recreate safely? Or what are those infrastructure needs that are most impacting the visitor experience? Big list of suggested projects to work through here. We're uh, finalizing our list right now. That'll be complete for certain by the end of the year and work on a number of these projects will begin immediately. Of course, hunting and fishing continue to be part of recreation on many of the nation's national forests, along with hiking and camping and such. However, Gordy says the Forest Service is now involved in a year-long look at its recreational programs with an eye to the future, with an eye toward reimagining recreation on the forests. After all, some of our, our recreation program was designed at a different point in time in our nation's history. And we want to make sure that we're looking towards the future and connecting with user groups that might not be fully aware of all the opportunities they have out in their national forests. Or there might be barriers that, you know, get in the way for whatever reason of them having the same types of access and opportunities to enjoy their public lands. So we would like to uh, identify those barriers and see what we can do 
to reduce them or eliminate them. So it's going to be a big project to gather information and ideas from as many people and places as possible. We'll have a variety of ways in which we do this, both through surveys and open-door listening sessions. And we'll be sharing information about this. There's a reimagining recreation forest service webpage that people can access if they want more information. And we're pretty excited about it. But Gordy Bloom says this is a huge project and the time is probably right for it. And some of this is about deciding, you know, maybe there are types of things that we don't need to invest in anymore to allow us the flexibility to invest in other things with an eye towards the future. Ooh, hey, maybe they'll invest in some pickleball facilities. Well, it could happen. You never know. Easiest way to find the webpage that he mentioned is just go online, search Forest Service Reimagine Recreation. Forest Service Reimagine Recreation. This has been Agriculture USA. I'm Gary Crawford, reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. The American Farm Bureau Federation unified the dairy industry over the weekend to discuss the federal milk marketing order. Michael Clement shares what the farmers, processors, and others associated with the dairy business had to say. Farm Bureau hosted a federal milk marketing order form in Kansas City, Missouri over the weekend. AFBF economist Danny Munch says the discussion focused on several topics. The turnout was great. We had over 180 farms, cooperatives, processors, and other industry-adjacent organizations represented. We had four different panel sessions with a variety of different speakers about differing dairy issues, including class one pricing issues, class three and four pricing issues, and then general ways to simplify the federal order system. All of our members were very engaged, and there was just really this sign of goodwill and cordialness between the attendees. The three-day event was in response to Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack calling on the dairy industry to come together. So in the past, the dairy industry has often been looked at as factioned, farmers often separate from their co-ops or separate from processors. So to bring them together under one roof and discuss these issues was the intention. And I think at the end of the conference, it really was a strong, resounding yes result that that happened. Everyone was able to listen to each other and just a strong feeling of unity across the industry after those discussions. Following the event, AFBF and the National Milk Producers Federation concluded with a unified goal. We were able to put together a statement with the National Milk Producers Federation as well as a number of other dairy organizations that basically committed to modernization of the federal orders. We all support the existence of federal orders and supporting the dairy industry and we're just generally encouraged by all the healthy discussion. Learn more at fb.org. Michael Clements, Washington. Well, October is National Cooperative Month, placing a spotlight on this business model and its significance both to the American and rural economies and services. Here's Rod Bain with more. There is a good possibility your life in some way is touched by a cooperative, and perhaps in ways you may not realize. Whether you belong to a credit union or you get electricity in a rural area, or even if you drink milk or eat candy that has sugar from sugar beets, you're probably benefiting from a cooperative. Yet as Agriculture Undersecretary for Rural Development, Social Torres Small says, the cooperative business model is a very important driver in both the economy of our nation and the services provided to consumers. More than 30,000 cooperatives, including agricultural, utility, financial services, purchasing, food and grocery, housing and retail co-ops, operate at 73,000 places of business throughout the United States, and they generate more than $660 billion in annual revenue. And agricultural cooperatives, they operate in 9,500 locations in 50 states. The cooperative model, particularly in rural America, also provides a stable business model 
18 percent of agricultural cooperatives are a century old or older. 51 percent of ag co-ops are more than 75 years old. Cooperatives provide countless goods and services all across rural America. That includes sectors from healthcare to food to financial services and electricity, as well as high-speed internet and more. You also may not know it, but rural electric cooperatives provide power to three quarters of the nation's land mass. That combined with telecommunications co-ops are helping to expand access to high-speed internet service as well. With October being National Cooperative Month, the Undersecretary says the importance of this business model to our nation, rural America specifically, needs to be highlighted. And she provides examples of her first-hand experiences with cooperatives. I belong to a credit union, so I belong to a cooperative. I also used to serve on the board of our local food market cooperative. And I just love when I meet farmers who receive support from their cooperatives and are able to pool their economic power to be able to expand markets. Not just for themselves or their cooperative entities, but in expanding benefits to the communities and regions they operate in. And Undersecretary Torres Small notes some of the resources available through the USDA Rural Development Mission Area to start and support cooperatives. Rural development provides cooperative technical assistance through rural cooperative development centers, which are partially funded through USDA's rural cooperative development grants. USDA also partners with rural cooperatives through the Cooperative Services Branch, which strives to help rural residents form new cooperatives, as well as improving the operations of existing ones. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. When we return, reducing human illnesses caused by salmonella. Researchers are working on it. And a Twin Falls Cafe is using Idaho-produced products thanks to the Idaho Farm to Chef program. We'll have that report just ahead on the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. Welcome back to the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. To catch this or previous episodes on podcast, just go to IdahoFarmNet.com. Reducing human illnesses caused by salmonella in poultry products is the goal of a proposed new USDA plan. Gary Crawford has this report. What you are hearing now is a sound I collected at a Virginia poultry processing plant. According to figures from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, over the last 20 years or so, the instances and levels of salmonella bacteria contamination in poultry across the nation have come down. But the number of human illnesses traced to salmonella in poultry products has not come down. It would appear that what we're doing isn't getting the job done. So U.S. Department of Agriculture Deputy Undersecretary for Food Safety Sandra Eskin says the agency's Food Safety and Inspection Service has come up with a plan, a proposed framework, if you will, of actions designed to get that job done. And we'll get to that plan in a minute. First, some numbers about the human illness side of the issue. The CDC estimates that in the U.S. every year there are over 1.3 million cases of people getting sick from salmonella bacteria and about 325,000 of those are linked to consumption of poultry products. And Sandra Eskin says illness from salmonella can vary many times for healthy adults. It's just a horrible few days of uh, digestive and other symptoms. However, for vulnerable populations, including young children, older people, and anyone with a compromised immune system, these illnesses can be very serious, landing them in the hospital and in some cases leading to death. 
Eskin says to at least reduce the chances of that happening to someone, USDA is proposing a plan, a framework designed to look all along the supply chain and the processing and figure out if there's more we can do at any number of points. There are three components to the plan. First, to require flocks heading for processing plants to be tested beforehand for how much and possibly what kinds of salmonella the birds may be carrying. And that data would then be given to the processing plant and USDA inspectors before the birds could come into the plant to be processed. And based on that data, the establishment and our inspectors can make a determination whether or not the load of salmonella is something the process can handle, can bring down. Component number two, a new series of checks and monitoring for salmonella within those processing plants. Component three would put limits on salmonella content of the final consumer products. If those products don't meet standards, they could not be sold to consumers. Eskin says we're in the early, early stages of work on this plan. She says it could take years to fully develop and implement the plan. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Well, the Idaho Farm to Chef Connection is a video series produced by Idaho Preferred, which is an initiative by the Idaho Department of Agriculture to promote the consumption of Idaho-grown products. This week, we go to Twin Falls to the Yellow Brick Cafe. We are at Yellow Brick Cafe, downtown Twin Falls, upstairs on the beautiful rooftop patio. (laughs) We opened almost five years ago. My background uh, has been working in restaurants since I was 15. Started my cooking career in Sacramento and then ended up in Napa Valley when it was time for me to start thinking about opening my own place. It was an easy decision for me to go somewhere where I had a lot of family history, a lot of roots, and so that was my decision moving to Twin Falls. I knew that downtown Twin was seeing this renaissance and this reinvigoration and I wanted to be a part of it. The original concept was always, um, you know, how can we take what's here and very hyper seasonal food and locally grown food and how can we put that on a plate that nourishes people, people's bodies and maybe even inspires them to eat healthier. From a, a chef standpoint on getting fresh local product, um, again, just being harvested, uh, a day before, a couple hours before. There is a big difference in taste. It's a different, different experience. And for us as a chef, we really enjoy having that to our disposal. I enjoy it very much. So right now, currently in our menu, we do use a lot of the local products that we have. We use some of our flat iron steaks, the beef from Red Star Ranch that we get right now from um, Krista, and then also a lot of the Peterson Family Farms. We have our hash that we use, all the peppers we get from Bonnie. Um, we use our strawberries in our parfait, in um, any berry dessert we have. So our burrata and tomato salad, all the tomatoes and the strawberries in that dish are coming from Peter's Family Farms. I have this tiny section over here, and those were grown mostly for you guys. So those are soybeans for edamame. I love Jimmy Gives Me Lists yep. because I'm like, if you tell me you want me to grow, I will try anything. She likes to experiment with different products that she hasn't grown. And so we will talk about if she's able to grow a variety of peppers that she hasn't grown and she will work with those and grow them. This is like, we always look for these kind of peppers because they're so plateable, right? So like right. ones like this size, you kind of have to you cut have them to up. And, but with these, you can literally take like a half a pepper 
uh, roast it up and put it on a plate and it's like such a plateable okay. um, all right i'll do better option <laughs> We're able to work with all of our producers and ask them, are you able to grow this for us? Are you able to make this special kind of cheese? Are you able to create this brand new product or grow something that you've never grown before? And almost always the answer is yes. And so now you have this collaboration where they're learning something, we're learning something. Uh, they're growing something they've never grown and now they're able to supply other people with that, with that item. And that's kind of, that's where the magic happens, is when you meet people who are so excited about food in the same way that you are, and you get to just do this really exciting new thing. Uh, it kind of forces everyone to grow. It's 130 feet long by about 40 foot wide. It houses our 18 citrus. It goes all the way from palmello, Washington orange, tangelos, two different types of lemons, uh, tangerines, and clementines. We're using their figs now. We make a fig chutney for our grilled cheese in the restaurant at Yellow Brick Cafe. Um, we also use the fresh figs that we, in our stone fruit pancetta salad. And then on, the, on this side is our greens, which actually these guys are ready. Oh yeah. I have so much respect for how hard farmers work. <clears throat> I have so much respect for people building their businesses from the ground up. I'm so impressed with their grit and perseverance. And while there maybe isn't a huge market in this area specifically for people sourcing local products, my hope is that we inspire them to do so and that we can kind of cultivate that community where we are supporting farms as a top priority. I've learned to embrace the reality that maybe local products are a little harder to source here. Um, but it makes it that much more rewarding when we can finally find those people and find their products and show them like, yes, they have a home here. By the way, if you'd like to see the video version of this report, just search Idaho Preferred on YouTube. Plenty of other videos there as well to catch up on. In our final segment, a look at the small grains and the domestic wheat balance sheet, plus a brand new installment of Paul Marchant's Irons in the Fire on the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. Welcome back to the final segment of the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. October's U.S. wheat supply and demand estimate and its adjustments are notable in several instances due in part to previous reports. Looking at our nation's wheat crop and stocks, Rod Bain has this. At the end of last month, USDA issued its quarterly stocks and small grain summary report. The report indicated a lowering of harvested wheat acres from the previous year and a 2.2% year-over-year increase in yields. But how did the data translate into the Agriculture Department's latest domestic supply and demand estimate for wheat? World Agricultural Outlook Board Chair Mark Jekodowski explains. That report showed about an 8% decline in U.S. wheat production from what we had been forecasting. So tightening up production by about 133 million bushels. Which then led to other adjustments in the U.S. wheat balance sheet. Total supplies down month over month and year over year for the current marketing year. Lower feed and residual use 
Add. We reduced our export forecast by 50 million bushels, and we've been seeing that the export pace has been pretty slow for all classes, with the exception of soft red winter. So we reduced the export forecast by 50 million bushels down to 775 million. That wheat export forecast is notable in that... If realized, that level of exports would be the lowest U.S. wheat exports since the 1971-72 crop year. Also reduced Reduced domestic wheat ending stocks by 34 million bushels, with USDA's latest forecast at 576 million bushels. We're also looking at the lowest ending stocks for wheat since the 2007-2008 crop year. The tightening of domestic wheat supplies also meant a price adjustment from the previous month. We raised the season average wheat price by 20 cents per bushel up to $9.20. That would be up $1.57 per bushel year over year. And the lower production estimate for U.S. wheat was also the primary catalyst for a reduction in global wheat production in October, with the world wheat production forecast down 2.2 million tons from September. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. In our final segment, Paul Marchant will close things out with some September satisfaction on the latest installment of Irons in the Fire. With our Indian summer clearly in the rearview mirror and the cold weather now upon us, I kind of got thinking about the seasons and the changing thereof. You know, the Christmas season has a feel. Springtime has a feel. You know, like Saturday or Sunday carry a certain vibe with them. I suppose every unique season or day has its own feel. Generally speaking, when I consider the feel that a time of year puts out, it's mostly a good feel. September, though, is different. For me, September carries a distinctive feel, but it's more a blanket of melancholy than eager anticipation of the changing of the seasons. It may well be a holdover emotion from my childhood when I had to leave the comfortable embrace of home and head back to school. But September often seems to be a weighty reminder of missed opportunities and the heavy, dull burden of unfinished chores. To be sure, it's not all bad, what with the harvest season just getting serious and the impending fall gather, but it always takes me a few days to appreciate the rewards that eventually come with September sacrifices. And so it was with this year's iteration of September. I was just getting my legs back under me after ten days of county fair and a subsequent week of catching up on everything that had been semi-neglected during fair week. Though the early mornings carried just a hint of fall, the brief morning cool gave way quickly to the brutality of cloudless 95-degree days. The flies were getting sticky, and they were somehow always managing to find a way in the house, and it's that way every September. We were needing to make a big push with the cows on the mountain, and I had half a dozen horses in dire need of having the shoes reset before several days of rock climbing in the rough, dry terrain of the foothills. As much as I wished otherwise, it was really no time for idleness. It's a pretty tight window on late summer mornings where there's sufficient early light to see well enough to drive a nail in the shoe before the sun in the bright September sky unleashes its ruthless heat and the flies start to really pester the horses. I'm not a professional farrier, and I usually need about an hour to go around all fours of a horse that I'm familiar with. The shade of my shoeing tree only holds out so long, so if all goes well, I can get a couple horses done in the morning. 
Any amateur mathematician or part-time meteorologist can quickly figure out that I'd need three trouble-free mornings to get six horses shot. For some reason, the mental preparation for shoeing horses saps the positivity right from my very being. The thoughts of coaxing the little brown mare to lift her hind leg up or how the big bay gelding leans on me are about as pleasant to me as what the small-town freshman boys probably feel on the first week of football practice with the varsity. Speaking of my shoeing, though, just as peculiar is what happens once the job is commenced. My horseshoeing has become kind of my therapy. As long as I'm not dealing with colts, I prefer to be alone with the ponies when I shoe. As exhausting as the work may be, it's oddly soothing, and as long as I don't skewer my finger while I'm bending a nail over, it often turns into a time of, well, we'll call it meditative reflection. It seems to be the best way I know to recalibrate my internal, emotional, and spiritual gyroscope. One morning, as I picked up the second foot of a horse number two that I was shoeing, I couldn't help but notice another rip in the cheap-made shoeing chaps that covered my leg. I'd gotten these particular chaps online for 50 bucks a year earlier when my youngest son, who was always watching out for me, sent me a link he'd found to some outfit in the Midwest. They were advertised as sturdy leather chaps. The ad didn't mention that the only leather was on the leg pads and the pockets. Otherwise, it was constructed as some sort of really cheap, inferior plastic canvas. I used them anyway and just hoped that nobody stopped by while I had them on. It was kind of akin to the dude who wears a straw hat in January, if you know what I mean. I switched hammers and grabbed the one I'd left soaking in a bucket of water overnight so the handle would swell enough to hold the head on while I worked. That's another little annoyance brought on by the dry September heat. Both of my shoeing hammers were Christmas and Father's Day gifts from two different kids, each thoughtful enough to find a meaningful, useful, and practical gift they knew their old man would appreciate. The nails in the box of shoes came from the ranch supply store where my dad likes to shop on Tuesdays because they offer a 10% senior discount. Every spring, he takes my horseshoe order, always mindful to grab a few sets of ones to go with all of the oughts that I use for most of the horses. As I finished tacking each shoe on, I'd set the foot up on the stand that my ag teacher daughter-in-law built for me as, as a surprise gift after she'd seen me rasping and shaping hooves while my knee served as a stand. I keep my clinchers and rasps in an old five-gallon hydraulic oil bucket my wife retrieved for me from her garden when, years ago, she noticed what an unorganized mess my tools were. My best nippers were given to me by a dear friend who cut his teeth in the cowboy world when he worked for me as an intern on a ranch I ran when I was fresh out of college. As I finished and turned horse number six out on my last day of shoe and my September therapy session complete, I may have felt a lump in my throat and maybe a touch of a tear in my eye as I gathered my tools and watched the old pony lope to the west end of the pasture to join his compadres. It dawned on me that September's superficial sadness nearly always rebounds to an understated yet overwhelming gratitude for all of the good and intangible things and the good and the dear people who give true value to my life's efforts. And I hope it's the same for you. This is Paul Marchant wishing you the best of weeks. All right, that does it for this week. I'm Neil Larson. Thank you for joining me, and we'll catch up with you next week on the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show.